0: Hi, I'm Xian Xiao
1: and I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness
0: experience. The Waiting Room Revolution starts right now. Well, welcome back to The Waiting Room Revolution. Today we have Elizabeth Miller with us. She is a family caregiver from the sandwich generation from Atlanta, Georgia. She is a certified caregiver consultant and the founder of the Happy Healthy Caregiver podcast. It's a podcast. It's a community. She does writing. She does speaking. It's amazing. We're so excited to have you on our show today, Elizabeth.
2: Thank you, Sam and Sammy. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Welcome. I feel like we should start at the beginning. Before you became a podcast host and a caregiver coach, you have a caregiving story. So I'd love to know a little bit more about that.
2: Well, like a lot of family caregivers, I was volunteered (laughs) or or just kind of fell into a mudslide of it. You know, for some people, I think it's a crisis that happens overnight. For me, I saw it coming. You know, I saw it for years coming with my aging parents uh, and my mother-in-law. So my husband and I, back in 2014, we found that we were caring for our aging parents who had chronic uh, and terminal illnesses. And our kids who were in middle school and approaching high school years at that time, and we both had full time, we were at the height of our career, and we we're overwhelmed, and we were losing our minds, frankly, and I, my general demeanor is to be a positive, uplifting person, and I could just kind of feel that that was a uh, no longer the situation. And I was desperate for figuring something out and figuring out resources and things that, would, that were gonna help. Uh, at the I live outside of Atlanta uh, with my husband, and my two kids and my parents were retired, trying to live their best life in Florida. It had a beautiful place on the beach, but because of health or chronic health conditions, uh, they affectionately call them a cocktail of different things. You know, my both of them were morbidly obese uh, diabetic had sleep apnea. My mom had COPD. My dad had psoriasis. My mom had depression, uh, hypothyroidism, so many different things. I'm sure I'm hearing loss. Uh, and so that's why a cocktail of different things. And then my mother-in-law was here locally with us and she was in her fourth year of lung cancer at that time. And my, my husband's parents were divorced. He was the only one living, you know, nearby her. So the primary care responsibilities fell on him.
0: Wow. Elizabeth, you were caregiving for a lot of people.
2: My folks living six hours away, they made it very clear that, you know, we have six kids and we expect you to help us and you will come when, when being asked. Uh, Although we had tried many times to convince them or intervene or shed tears and 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 see if they would move closer to family uh they did not and so it was it was a lot at first it was just going back and forth and then long story short I was actually the stronger of the two in my family of my parents and I think what you see sometimes in older couples is that the one that is stronger burns out and um it was kind of surprised us all, frankly, that he passed away first in the summer of 2014. Within a month's time, he spent his last, last week on hospice. He had gut sepsis and all of his organs were not cooperating. Uh, and then we were forced with really making tough decisions about what to do with mom. And so we brought my mom. I also have a brother that's developmentally disabled. Um, they both came to the Atlanta area because there are three of us lived in, in Atlanta, two brothers of mine and myself. But being the female and a strong-willed female at that, I, you know, I took on the primary care responsibilities uh, for a while until it transitioned to my sister, and mom lot, had lots of bonus years due to my the, to the great care I think that our family had given her over the years, and uh, but sadly she passed away last last September. So mm-hmm. and Jason's mom, my husband's mom, had passed away back in twenty in December. So we had both lost a parent our kid's a grandparent in that year, very long-winded, sorry, but that's, that's the nutshell, the best I can say.
1: It's like your curriculum vitae, your resume.
2: Well, it's funny. I interviewed somebody for my podcast and she called it, uh, get she, that she got her master's in caregiving. And that really describes it. Well, I think is that we have this education that we didn't know we needed. But we do need, we all need it, frankly.
1: Mm-hmm. We talk about that in one of our episodes. Well, a couple of them, this idea that the caregiver role is usually a serendipitous role. Uh, it's not something that you um, um, interview for. It's not something that um, you expect to be in that role. It, it, you, it, you just happen to be in proximity most of the time and you end up before you know it um, with this other role without any real roadmap uh, or instruction book on what that's going to look like.
2: I wish there was one, you know, it was bad the other day, how, when I had my kids, I was, would just savor the book, what to expect when you're expecting and, and turn to my husband and be like, did you know the baby's the size of a walnut right now or apricot or something? And you kind of just know what's coming. And wouldn't that be awesome to have this guide of, of, of what's coming so that you could just wrap your head around it and, and completely prepare for it. Um, and I think our healthcare system frankly can help with this. I think that, you know, if I were to wave a magic wand what I would want to see happen is they know that we're family care before we actually know that we're family caregivers. And so it's clear, I'm the person, you know taking the notes by the bedside of their in their when they're hospitalized I'm the person that's wheeling them in and, you know, asking all the questions What, what if someone just had said, you know, did you know that you were called a family caregiver? You're probably losing your mind. Uh, Here are some resources and some things that would help. If I feel like we can do better there. I know that, you know, I was getting tons of information from the healthcare community about how I could take better care of my loved ones. You know, here's how you Mm -hmm. do wound care and here's how you manage EDs. But nobody had ever said to me like you you're losing it. And here's, here's some help for you,
1: Elizabeth. It's so crazy that you just brought up that book, what to expect when you're expecting, because mm-hmm. when CN and I first started um, collating all the Intel and the information that we had, we had every intention of doing a book, what to expect when you're dying until few people, like my sister said, who would ever pick up a book like that. And it was it was going to be intended for caregivers and uh, patients and families to look at the last year of their life, just like the nine months of pregnancy. Um, But we didn't think it would be marketable because we live in such a death denying um, society and healthcare culture. Um, But uh,
2: It would be a hard one to pick up. I think it takes, I think it takes a couple real life experiences for you to be able to just, I mean, now I can have those conversations, you know, back six, seven years ago, not so easy, but I'm also the person now, you know, asking those questions of my friends um, and family members, you know, do you have this in place? Have you thought about this? And, you know, when you're at somebody's ceremony, like recently my aunt passed away um, just a few weeks ago, actually. And, you know, every time that happens, you just think about like, would I want this? Would this, you know, and, and talking about that with my husband and my kids and my cousins mm-hmm. and, you know, even telling the nitty-gritty details of like, hey, just so you know, when I die, I want to have a party, a memorial service. And I want you to bring all my scrapbooks and memories. Um, so I was a creative memories consultant for years and I did a great job for a while, my mm-hmm. photos. I want everybody looking at pictures and relishing memories. And my husband will say, oh, no, I'm not bringing all those albums. I said, you have to. I've told everybody. I've told everybody that you've got to bring them.
0: I wanted to go back. You mentioned that your dad in his last few weeks got palliative care. What was that experience like?
2: When it first got approached to me, I had never heard of palliative care um, you know, back in 2014. And it came out of a discussion because my dad was intubated he got sepsis. I said his organs were not all cooperating with each other. And somebody from the hospital system down in the Jacksonville area approached my family, a care manager, I think. Um, And, you know, my dad didn't want to be intubated the fourth time. You know, there was a heart wrenching moment between my mom who had just gone through rehab, was not well enough to come even visit with him in the hospital. And she's, basically begging my dad again, one more time, Larry, one more time. And my sister, bless her heart, had to witness that heart-wrenching moment. He didn't want to, but he did it for my mom. So, but at that point, then after the fourth time, when they couldn't get his levels, all working together, knowing what his wishes were, which is he did not want to be, you know, we were even contemplating at one point a tracheotomy. I'm calling my girlfriend down the street, who's a registered nurse, like help me understand what life looks like with a tracheotomy. And because um, we weren't getting that, you know, from the system, so uh, from the healthcare healthcare providers. And then even if we were getting it, you know, you were playing telephone a little bit between all of us who are tag teaming care for our parents. So dad did um, receive uh, one week of hospice, and you know his his journey was quite quick at the end. He had chronic issues, multiple issues for a while, but you know from July fourth to August fifth, that was his his end of life journey. It was quick. He went to um, a hospice facility and my experience, my first experience with hospice, uh, I'm grateful to say, and all of them since then have been positive for for my family, Mm
0: -hmm. positive
2: experiences. I remember even the guy's name who was a volunteer. um, This was an external third-party facility. His name was Sunny, And I was Mm -hmm. like, what did, you know, and he was, he was sunshiny. And I'm just like, how fascinating is this that this person is so kind? And this situation is really sucky. And, you know, they had complimented our family that we're a little bit unlike others where we, we did look at it as a party. We had, you know, just a couple of days before my dad passed, we um, had a celebration of life. We all read, it was almost like a living eulogy right in front of them. We read letters, we had people on FaceTime, we had a cake, we had wine and they were just like, I wish more families kind of would do that. But that's I think a purpose of something to kind of do during that time too. So, um, and then I think that first experience then kind of prepares you and plans you for the, for the
1: next one. I know, you know, um, the, the goal of our, the content in our podcast series is actually to help citizens, uh, regular people who don't have healthcare training, um, patients and caregivers learn the skills and the different ways of, walking their journey and interacting with the healthcare system that allow them to get the information they need right from the diagnosis to guide them along the way so that they don't feel in the dark until the last moments.
2: I think that's great. I think, you know, I, I'm hopefully helping to amplify that message as well. And, you know, I know just even with my recent experience with my cousin, her, my dad's sister had. Uh, a mouthful progressive super nuclear palsy and frontal temporal dementia and not curable um, and was really declining fast this year Um, and so I introduced the conversations to my cousin about she was an only child and you know at first you know, you do kind of think uh, hospice and palliative care. I know that that's, you know, one of the things I had to learn. They're not the same. You can, anybody can, anybody can have palliative care. Mm -hmm. Um, Hospice, you know, yes, maybe there's some kind of six months to at your actual end of life. However, I can tell you, my mom was on hospice for two years. I mean, she was reevaluated every six months, but what that allowed and this is what I explained to my cousin is like, what that allowed my sister who had full reigns of mom during that experience, when she was receiving that, that palliative hospice care, because she was at end of life is that it gave my sister more sanity because, you know, the nurses and the, and the people were coming to her, they were evaluating her medications. They were sending the medications directly. They were sending the supplies directly. Those were all things that my sister had to do on her own. My mom was also a very large woman, you know, to bathe her was a, was a chore. And so having them come, you know, three times a week to bathe her and change the sheets was a huge relief for my sister. And then of course, they offered grief and counseling services and, um, and, and they become your friends, like, you know, those are my sister's buddies, um, even long after mom has, has passed. So they're, they're coming into a very, in that case, mom had home hospice. That was also the situation for my mother-in-law home hospice. Um, and, and then I've experienced recently with my aunt uh, hospice as part of a skilled nursing facility. Um, and so I kind of feel like I got a little bit of taste of, of some different experiences, but all of them positive.
0: I'm glad you have had positive experiences. I think what gets us all excited about this podcast is that we know that there's something amazing when people receive hospice palliative care, but so many people do not discover it or they get it very late. And so we wanted to go upstream and make it accessible for everyone who could benefit from it. Because as you noted, it isn't just the patients who benefit, but everyone around them, their family, their caregivers, their loved ones. And they are critical to the story too.
2: During the pandemic that saddened me was that the caregiving caregivers were not seen as, a, as part of the essential work team. And it's critical, right, to have somebody advocate for your health. And, you know, sometimes stuff is just flying at you. You're, you're dealing with all the emotions. And so, you know, hearing it, writing it down, um, how many times have I been that person in the room that has explained to somebody walking in um, oh no, sh- this just happened. Or she just saw the respiratory person or, you know, you're, you're basically the nucleus kind of holding it all together. It's, it's, it's overwhelming.
1: Elizabeth, this is a podcast, so no one can see you, but of course we're, we can see you while we're taping and I can see that you get choked up.
2: Yes, I do. I get a shaky little voice so people can hear that for sure. But yeah, no, no worries. I don't apologize for these emotions.
1: No, it's a little and I bit don't of PTSD, want
2: probably. Frankly. No,
1: this is what I was going to say. I don't want you to apologize. I want you to lean into it and tell us what about it makes you choked up because I think it's real. It is real, and it and I want you to be able to express why it makes That's you so passionate. Yeah.
2: Um. I mean, it's just it's it's your it's your life. Yeah. It's it's you I'll have to unpack that a little bit. But I do think that, you know, for me, you know, for a while, I just thought that, oh, I'm talking, I'm just sharing stories, but to your point, it is a form of advocacy to, you know, really spotlight those different circumstances and, and amplify them um, because I think that there's just a discon- a huge disconnect. What makes you all passionate about it?
1: Um, anger and frustration. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, it's so angry and frustrated that I don't think I can shed a tear. <laughs> oh, geez. I'll cry <laughs> up for
2: you too. I'm an empathetic crier. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, good. Good. Um, yeah, both Sienna and I have been exposed to so many stories that have gone wrong. Mm. And the hardest part about it is that the patients and the caregivers don't even know how wrong their stories really are. Um, because they don't know that this could have been so much better had things upstream been different for them, had people offered them information, had the healthcare system invited them to know more about not just the nitty gritty day-to-day treatments and blood work and investigations, but the bird's eye view of their illness. Like I said, that, you know, these illnesses have certain patterns to them. And we keep that from people because we think it's going to make them depressed. I shouldn't tell a caregiver and a patient that COPD is progressive and that you're going to run into these exacerbations. You might even end up in the ICU and you'll probably bounce back, but you won't be the same as when you went in. And these exacerbations will come closer and closer and closer, and we can't get rid of them. It's not cured. And so X, Y, and Z. I mean, we we just say you have COPD. And it's chronic, and here are your medications, and let's take your your lung function tests, you know, at intervals, and I'll give you the value. Your lungs are at forty percent. Okay, thanks for telling me my lungs are at forty percent. But a lot of what's missing is the meaning around um, the bits and pieces of information that do get shared with patients and families. You can get. I think that-
2: Yeah, I like to your point was like, I'm thinking about like COPD. No one ever had kind of sat down and said, um, you know, probably for a while, I didn't even know what COPD even stood for, you know, I just knew it was some kind of, you know, cause of her lifestyle choices, which is what prompts me to do what I do is not have caregivers burn out is like, I've seen examples of what happens when people don't, you know, prioritize their own health. And, But nobody had ever kind of put that trajectory out for us. You know, I think we were like, you know, she, she was, every time she got a cold, she would need to be hospitalized. Like that would have been good to know, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, because she, she wouldn't be able to just take regular medication and and get Mm -hmm. off her, 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 get it, get over it herself. Um, You know, eventually I, you know, I don't know if it was because of her weight or COPD, but both, you know, she became, she was bedridden the last two Mm -hmm. years of her life. You know, she was, she was cranky she didn't want to take her breathing treatments her lack of oxygen maybe that had something to do with her cognitive issues you know she had a lot of adventures this last year of her life where she would you know see dead people and 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 some things were funny and some things not so funny mm-hmm. um so all kinds of things that you're like maybe that maybe that was her normal trajectory of and of course you know the oxygen you're going to be dependent on oxygen mm-hmm. um yeah it would have been nice to i think have known all of that
0: I was just going to say, and so much of what, um, you know, these skills that we talked about, these seven skills, and, and you're talking some of uh, is the zooming out skill, this idea of understanding the big picture and then knowing what to look for so that you can prepare, right? Like what are the things that I should be, you know, when should I be enjoying the moment and knowing things are stable, but there are events and colds and things that are going to happen that could tip the balance. And what does that mean? The meaning making of all this medical information is where I think we could do a a lot better job. And these skills is this is what we're passionate about is trying to change the storyline, not point out the problems because many books do that, but what could be done and what are the things that people are doing different or the people that have better outcomes, better stories, what are they doing different? And can we learn from them? And I know that's such a big part of your podcast, Uh, happy, healthy caregivers. So is that, you know, how did that come about? What was the trigger to, to be, to do a podcast and, and all the hundred and sixteen and hundreds of guests. You have.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I um, it just you know layered on over time. You know, first it was writing was very cathartic, and then it was uh, becoming a certified caregiving consultant. I wanted to be more knowledgeable and have more education around coaching caregivers, and then the podcast. I uh, was kind of going back to my roots. I studied broadcast journalism at Penn State, and loved to ask questions, loved to tell stories, and. That um, that just seemed like a natural a natural fit for me uh, content wise. It takes less time than writing. It's you know it, it's engaging uh, with other people. And then I wanted to add on to your seven your seven skills is like the same skills that apply for. Um, for for providing this this roadmap and path of better care for a care recipient, these also apply for empowering and um, engaging and educating and um, helping a caregiver, you know know what what to expect and know how, what their role is and what their role is not, frankly. Um, so set, setting up boundaries you know yes, my focus is more on, helping the caregiver. my business is so new people are like I-, I don't understand what you do and I'm like well you know the, the people who are loved ones they're losing their minds and so I want to help them so that they don't burn out I want to fast track courses and the in the services and I want to provide them a listening and you know they're just kind of scratching their head because nobody's ever done that before mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and there's more of us than there than there used to be but, you know, basically I'm just creating what I wish existed for me seven years ago. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, when I listen to some of the episodes, they are so, um, tangible and practical and real, um, that it's, it's information for real people. And we try to do the same thing. In fact, our, um, podcast series is geared towards both patients and caregivers. We try to spotlight both of them because we know both have a journey. Um, both of them journey through the patient's journey, but the caregiver has a completely separate journey as well. And life is changing for the caregiver also. Um, we don't so spotlight true. them.
2: And we we talk um, as a certified caregiving consultant, part of the training that we get is that You know, not everybody's you mentioned, um, Dr. Sammy, the the pragmatic or the practical part of the stuff about my podcast. That's a that's a choice that I've made because the person who's going to um, really, I think, resonate with with the information is more of the person who has accepted their situation and is looking for pragmatic and practical Mm -hmm. solutions. If you just got your, you know, caregiver's diagnosis, you're probably drowning and entrenched, and you're not even ready to even soak that mm-hmm. up yet. Or the expectant mm-hmm. caregivers, you know, in denial. Um, and so there, the, you have to be able to kind of meet people where they are, mm-hmm. uh, and not everybody's not everybody's ready to consume it yet.
1: You just said something that is just going to be lasered into my brain. I don't know if you realize this, but did you say? the caregiver's diagnosis.
2: I don't know if I said that or not. You
1: did. You did. We can replay <laughs> it. And I think that's brilliant. It's almost like being a caregiver is a diagnosis in itself. <laughs> I think yeah, that, that's Yeah, I mean, there brilliant.
2: are stages of caregiving. There are, we, we learn that as part of, because when we're coaching our caregivers, we got to meet them. Uh, otherwise it's, it's, it's moot.
1: But calling it a diagnosis is like, Calling it for what it is, right? Um, you didn't ask for it, but you got this diagnosis, and it feels like uh, an illness because it's so difficult um, and so mysterious, and you didn't see it coming. Um, what you're trying Nobody to do, wants
2: to call that.
1: yeah, and what yeah. you're trying to do is turn it into a rule. It's a rule um, with a purpose. Season. It's a season. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. As opposed to a diagnosis, that's never going to go away. <laughs> no, I was going
2: to say, nobody wants to have this role uh, labeled on them. Like even the AC guy, I had to have my air conditioner fixed today. And he's talking to me, you know, and and he sees, he's like, what do, we, what do I do? And I explain it to him. And turns out he's like, oh yeah. Um, he, he didn't think he was a caregiver. His mom has MS and his dad had some other thing. I'm like, you're a caregiver, (laughs) like this is, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't even tell you how many times I have to tell people like, and Mm -hmm. they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be called that because it is daunting and and scary. And it it feels like, oh no, I'm just taking them grocery shopping on the weekends. I'm just going to the, you know, to the doctor's appointments um, or calling mom to make sure she takes her meds. I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. And that it starts out small. And then it just like, it's a part-time job at some point.
0: Oh, it's a what full-time do, job. Oh, oh. Full-time
2: job for many, yes. yes.
1: What do you think are the advantages of having the label? Is it a relief to people or is it a burden to label or not to label? And what do you think is the best label?
2: Well, I think we're having a hard time even getting one label. So I know that there's been some, some conversations about, well, maybe we should call it care partner or this or... Um, but it's already hard enough. So I don't know that I would recommend we change the label. Um, family caregiver, it, it is, you know, is, is close enough to what it seems like it should be called to me. Um, I think there is an advantage of having the label because, it at least allows you to know what you're looking for. Um, I know for me, when I sat down seven years ago, and I was like, "I'm going to Google or Amazon. I'm going to find books on this. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm digging in. I'm going to figure this out." I don't even know what to put into the search engines. You know, the first thing I landed on after who knows what I put in was sandwich generation, and I was like, ah that's what I am. I'm Mm -hmm. squeezed. I'm caring for kids and aging parents and losing my mind. Like this, this is what it is. I didn't even know I was called a family caregiver until a long time after that. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, my first website wasn't called happy, healthy caregiver. I I was the savvy sandwicher. I was going to figure out how to, how to make life work in the sandwich generation.
1: I loved your analogy in one of your um, earlier podcasts about As a caregiver in the sandwich uh, situation, you're the sandwich and, you know, things can fall out of your sandwich that you really want in there, like your coveted pickle or your Mm -hmm. special sauce, that these are all parts of you that, um, you know, that you have to make space in your sandwich to be in this position, right? And you have to do it with purpose and without guilt.
2: It's a hard thing it's easier to say than, and then to put it practice I I think you know when I describe how it fit, how it felt to be squeezed um, is to me the closest analogy I could come up with was it's like feeding a nest of a hungry bird it's like being a mother robin and you've got this nest and your nest represents your career your your marital relationship, your kids your your loved one, your health your sanity, you know, um, all of that. And there was these screeching birds and you are just one person going to get this worm and you're coming back. And it's like, you've got this whole decision tree of like, who, who gets what, how much is going to, you know, and, and really it's, it's exhausting, you know, nobody's ever satiated and you just go to bed completely spent, but at least like, you know, kind of the goal for me at some point, the mindset switch I had to have was like, if you look in the mirror and you can say to yourself. I, I gave it my all today. You know, that's as as good as anybody can ask. Mm -hmm. There goes that voice again.
1: No, I loved that voice. (laughs) I want to cry so badly. (laughs) You make it look so good. It's so.
0: I think what you're talking about is the exhaustion from trying to do so much, which I think many people listening can identify with.
1: It's um, so important. I'm just, you know, reading through the lines here for people to have respite breaks. Um, so you are coordinating with other family members how to provide each other with breaks. Um, but yeah, I mean, and sometimes caregivers are waiting for the big break, right? So, uh, but they don't. It never comes, and so. A, you have to know what the journey is gonna look like. B, it'd be nice to know how long the journey is going to be. And number three would be, or C, would be how can I get small sips of respite often? Mm -hmm. And what might that look like? What are the creative ways I might be able to catch my breath quickly so that I can continue to do this, for example, with the illness we said before, for another five years or another, you know, and, and how do you learn as a caregiver to lean in when you're needed and back out and take care of yourself when you're not needed and do this dance. You really can only do that. If you have a clear idea of what's normal, what's expected, what's around the corner, when can I plan to back off? When do I need to come in? And what are the triggers for that? We just let people flail.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm hopefully that happy, healthy caregiver can help with the whole um, that part of it, of the daily little bits and in, in, in the nooks and crannies of your day, because one of the things I say often is that if you're waiting for the girls night out the weekend away, they are, they are too far and few between. And so you do have to You do have to give yourself permission, number one, or allow me to give you permission if you need it and, um, and let you know what it looks like if you don't do it, because I've seen the examples in my own family with these three people with their lifestyle choices. And so that's not what I'm doing. And I don't want other people to do that. And so, and I think self-care for, for caregivers looks different. It's, it's not about those things. And it's also not just, I think we think about the physical self-care of, you know, sleep and, and drinking water and, and eating the right foods. And, and those things are great. The physical self-care, but it's also about the emotional self-care, the spiritual, the mental, and even the practical pragmatic. I mean, there is some sanity just with Having a list of what all the prescriptions are that your loved one takes or knowing that your your POA is in a certain drawer, um, that's self-care to me. And so how to, how to take that and just make it, infuse some of that into each day is critical. That is how you survive the journey. Because self-care to me is a synonym of energy. It's mm-hmm. like, how am I going to, how am I going to vers- either preserve or gain more energy so mm-hmm. that I can show up as the person I want to be?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like gas in the car.
2: Yeah. Gas in the car mm-hmm. and your car doesn't run forever. No, you got to take care of it. You got to change the tires. There's a mm-hmm. lot you got to do with a car. Mm-hmm. there's a lot my husband has to do the car because that was one of the things with the family responsibilities we had divvied up that's a part of self-care It's like hey mm-hmm. you own this this and this and i'm going to own this this and this and just knowing that that's not in my brain space that's self-care mm-hmm.
0: elizabeth you've been doing your podcast for a few years you've talked to lots of guests and you've seen what it's been like to be a caregiver and know what it feels like to be under-recognized and underappreciated. So I'm wondering from where you sit, what is it going to take to make a difference and see this culture shift? I
2: mean, That's I think what... some of the things that I see that are helping are, uh, and that I want to see more of is I want to see those conversations happen in the healthcare system with, you know, telling people they're a giving them a resources, you know, here, this could help you, um, And I wanna see more celebrities. And I think we're seeing that, you know, because people read and people look at what celebrities are doing. And so I love, you know, like the episode I did with, I love that Rob Blow shares his caregiving story and Dwayne, The Rock Johnson and whoever else. And it's like, I love those celebrities even more when I learned that they're caregivers. and so I think that gets people listening. It's like, it's, it knows no boundaries, you know, no socioeconomic class, no race, anything. Mm-hmm. We're all gonna, we're all gonna have this impacted. I think employers, I think, you know, one of the silver linings hopefully of, of the pandemic is that we are more stressed out as caregivers than ever because we've been managing virtual work and, and our kids education and, and handling barking dogs and, extra meals and, and all of those things. And so um, they're, they're tuning into, we need more flexible work options. We, we can work, you know, remotely and it, and it can work. Um, and we, and there, there's an impact to their productivity. And so I think they're starting to tune into those things. Um, mm-hmm. And then we just need more education. And I think we do that through, you know, different employ employer corporations, you know, with their, through their, Employee business resource groups, you know, educating people about caregiving and aging and and what's available. Um, I think you know women's conferences have because w- whether we like it or not, you know, over sixty percent of the caregivers are are women and and more caregiver appreciation events, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. I think all, I think it's not just one thing. I mm-hmm. think it's going to a lot of a lot a lot of things in order to kind of get that big boulder moving.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to be grassroots. It has to be bottom and top, right?
2: I think it has to be bottom and top. I think it also we're gonna need we're gonna need some some savvy technology in mm-hmm. some ways in order for it to scale because mm-hmm. it's big. It's a big problem. You know, we, we're we're aging. Um, we're not having as many and many, um, large families in order to take care of our aging. We've got a dwindling professional workforce. Um, it, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big I think deal.
1: I think you're right though. I think we need some famous spokespeople. I mean, they get on, um, advocacy roads for lots of different things, but yeah, we need some, we need a cruise of yeah. yeah I
2: mean there's Seth Rogan and his wife they do the um, HFC for dementia and Lisa with her dementia but but hey we need a lot more and maybe yeah. you know the younger millennial young carers I mean that's a growing yeah. population um, let's teach it could this be a skill we teach in school well how mm-hmm. crazy would that be <laughs> you know so
1: mm-hmm. it's true because you know people get um, premarital courses and we get
2: uh, we know how to make scrambled eggs
1: yeah we get home economics we get um career training you know we get you know civics and politics training but but people don't get trained for the one role that we know everyone is going to have one day
0: yeah for sure i i know in your podcast you have a lot of quotes um and I don't do. Do you have any sort of favorite quotes that you sort of cling to a lot? Um, I, I don't know. I have know. a I, lot.
2: I do. One that I that I think early on, uh, a couple, a couple that really helped me is like, "I love seize the day before it's oh, That's kind of one of the little mantras, um, and that just reminds me that I need to take time for myself in the morning before the day just derails. Um, nobody's nobody's asking me. For, you know, or no, I wouldn't say nobody, fewer people are demanding your attention earlier in the morning. Um, so that's always been, been good. And then I think you can have it all, just not all at once. And I believe that's an Oprah quote, because that just was a reminder to me is like, again, this is a season of your life. This isn't a defining you for forever. Um, and frankly, all of this, um, craziness with the caregiving, I wouldn't trade it for the world because how cool is it that I get to meet people like y'all and I get to meet some real like caregivers are the best people ever. So
1: mm-hmm. true. It's so
2: yeah,
0: true. Yeah. Donna Thompson's at one of our guests, so she, like they're the most creative problem solvers you will ever meet because they literally get thrown all these crazy curveballs every day and they solve problems non-stop they are the people you want to hire they are the yeah. people you want to go to because they know how to deal crisis with all the gray management. exactly crisis management stay calm figure things yeah. out
2: i know a That's lot of people worry about that you know they, they put their job on hold or they leave it all together and then they have this caregiving break and i was just uh coaching someone recently she said you know i don't know how i'm going to explain this." And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, talk to me about what you were doing. You were, you know, this, the chief of transportation, you were, you know, the chief officer, you were all these different things. And so I think somehow we got to extract that and put that and shine the light on on the benefits of it. And not just like, I mean, it is admirable too, of course, that, you know, but not everybody can do that. You know, we've all got to prepare for our own futures.
1: I think it's really important to emphasize what you said, which is, you know, clearly, um, you know, your caregiving role has been challenging. It's what's inspired you um, to help other people. But at the same time, uh, you look back and say, I wouldn't change it for the world. And so I think it's important for people to know that um, I don't know how to say this uh, in any other way. But it is burdensome to be a caregiver. It, it, is, a, it is a burden. That's not the right word. Work. But, it's, but, but, it's It's a but role. Patients, but patients do say that. I don't want to be a burden on so-and-so. It is a burden. We can soften it in any way. I we say want. that. Yeah. I don't want
2: to be a burden on my kids. Yeah, for sure. They'll but, tell me, mom, don't do that to me. <laughs> like what <laughs> we just did, That don't do that to me.
1: But the truth um, is, is that- Even the, but I think we can walk two roads with that one. I think we can say that being a caregiver has its burden, but there's also this road of feeling um, grateful, feeling love, feeling purpose, feeling helpful, feeling um, proud, uh, feeling Resilient. resilient. Yeah. And so- I think we don't have to feel only one or the other that we can say there's a road of all these very difficult feelings being a caregiver but we can simultaneously walk the road of all the beautiful things that happen along that very difficult journey.
2: I think if nobody you know if if someone's out there listening and thinks life's not going to be messy like well, you, that you're going to, you're going to need some, some proactive therapy there. Cause it's going to be messy. Like everyone's going to have their messes
0: mm-hmm. for
2: sure. And when I say I don't, wouldn't change it for the world, it doesn't mean that I don't want my parents still to be, you know, alive and well, or the, or the energetic grandparents that I wish that would, they were for my kids. And, but that just informs, um, my choices and how mm-hmm. I want to, I want to show up for, you know the future generations of the of the miller clan and i wanted to do in my in my you know second journey life here is that um you know we're not over the hill we're just like at the pinnacle like hey what's next Mm -hmm. um and i think i think it's all kind of goes back into this reframing and this and this uh this mindset set shift about things because we have Mm -hmm. choices of how we can look at everything you know and um Like, I I think one of the great wisdom I got early on too, and I don't, I wish I knew where it came from, but there's a lot of worrying that happens with caregiving and people would say, or someone had said that really resonated with me. Like, well, if you worry happens, then you suffer twice. But if you don't worry and you just kind of wait till you have the information and wait till you have the results and then you suffer, you only suffer once. And I'm like, Uh, I choose once. I don't want to suffer. twice. like, so I'm not a real big worrier about that. I kind of wait to have that information, but to your point, Dr. Sammy, like I'd love to have the information, like give it to me. um, so you can make the informed decisions and we can form our roadmap and hopefully, you know, reach back and help somebody where it's, it is a little bit easier for them.
0: Elizabeth, thank you so much for spending, spending some time with us yeah
2: I appreciate y'all thank you for for allowing me to have this cathartic experience with you
1: yeah I feel like we're kindred spirits the three of us
0: yeah for sure please visit our website waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more the podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan Our theme music is Maypole by Ketze. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.